0: More Questions Than Answers with Julie Panessi, brought to you by the Democracy Fund. Today, I am absolutely honored to be joined by someone that I've known and worked with for a while now, well, over a year anyway, I Absolutely, think, right? Yes, yes. Uh, and he's one of Canada's foremost academic scientists, Dr. Steve Pellick, to talk about natural immunity, what it is, I think, why we should care about it, and why we're not hearing about it quite as much as maybe we should. So Dr. Pellick is, has a PhD in biochemistry and is a full professor in the Department of Medicine at UBC. He has over 25 years experience in science, business, and administration, and he even trained with a Nobel laureate, Dr. Edwin Krebs at the University of Washington in Seattle. He is the Principal Founder of Kinetech Pharmaceuticals and the Principal Founder President and Chief Scientific Officer of Conexus. And so let's start there. Can you tell us a little bit about what it is about your training, your area of expertise, your research work that makes you interested in and competent to speak about natural immunity?
1: Sure. Well, first of all, it's a pleasure to be talking with you again, Julie. Um, what happened was about uh, oh, 34 years ago, actually 35, I first got my first job, right? I mean, after all of my training with a PhD degree and then postdocing abroad for five years, my first job was actually working at the Biomedical Research Center, and this is an a institution for immunology. It was uh, based on the University of British Columbia campus. And then Mm. after being there a year, I got my faculty appointment. And so I've been on faculty at UBC now, University of British Columbia for uh, about 34 years. And so six years I was in that institute um, studying immunology and basically how it is that T cells and B cells become activated and B cells are the immune cells that produce antibodies. And um, I had prior training with immunology. Before that, uh, as an undergraduate, I took all the courses that people that graduate with bachelor's degrees in immunology, microbiology and immunology get. And then um, I continued to, to do that research. Those companies that I founded, Conatech and Connexus more recently, Conexus has been in business for about 22 years. We produce antibodies in rabbits primarily that are used as probes to really track proteins involved in cancer and diabetes and and various diseases, neurological disorders in particular more recently. And so we have a lot of expertise in in how to make antibodies. And then what happened was with the advent of COVID-19, the technology that we had was very amenable to finding out what parts is it of the SARS-CoV-2 virus proteins, and there's 28 of them, the spike is only one, that Mm. your own immune system makes antibodies against to protect you from future infection. So we actually, um, in in January of 2020, the complete genome sequence of the SARS-CoV-2 virus was available and it allowed us to determine the structures of these 28 proteins. So we actually made those proteins, but in pieces rather than one whole intact protein. We, we we created it in overlapping pieces, over 6,000 pieces. And then we have them on arrays where every different piece is separated from each other. And then we take blood from people who have recovered from COVID-19. They recovered because their immune system was very effective and took it out. And so, and it did it in part with these antibodies that are produced. So when we take blood from these people, even months later, they still have antibodies and we incubate it with these membranes that have these peptides, wherever, whatever part it was that the immune system had learned to recognize, we got a a strong signal. So from this, we could actually identify several hundred different pieces of the various proteins of the virus and then use that to make a test. So now we've we've been running a clinical study for about over two years now. We've investigated about 3,500 people. And the bottom line is that 90% of the people that we've tested have antibodies against the virus. And some of these people...
0: And that includes vaccinated and unvaccinated people That's correct. Okay.
1: That's correct. And and when you're vaccinated you're only getting the spike protein. You're actually getting the genetic information so that your own body manufactures the spike protein, but all of your antibodies you would anticipate would for this virus would then be directed against the spike protein. Because we monitor routinely nine other of the proteins in the virus.
2: Mm.
1: When we look at people who've been vaccinated, they actually have antibodies against the other SARS-CoV-2 proteins as well as the spike protein, which tells us that in fact, they've already been infected with the virus probably before they even got immunized. Because we believe- so how,
0: how, how does that tell you they've had the virus and not just the vaccine? Can you just break that apart a little sure. bit?
1: So, so what I'm saying is that we track 10 of the proteins Mm -hmm. in the virus. And when you're immunized with the COVID-19 vaccine, you will only make antibodies against the spike protein, not the other nine. Mm
2: -hmm. So
1: if we take a person's blood, you know, from someone who's been vaccinated and they have antibodies that recognize those other nine proteins, at least a few of them then they must have been exposed to the virus itself. not Because the spike protein antibodies, we're not sure. They could have gotten the antibodies from infection with the virus, or they could have gotten it from inoculation with the vaccine. But the other proteins, no, they have to get it from the virus.
0: So when someone says, uh, I haven't gotten COVID, it's because I got vaccinated.
1: This not is necessarily. This, this is the dilemma, we, we clearly see that there's been a reduction in the severity of cases of COVID-19. In fact, since we vaccinated people, there's been way more cases of COVID-19, but much fewer of those cases end up being severe and going to the hospital and deaths in the last year. And so the like you have about a four to five fold less chance if you're, if you're infected with Omicron of going to the hospital than you did with say Delta. Now, what we don't know, and the assumption by the health authorities is, well, that's because, you know, we've been vaccinating everybody. You know, eighty-six percent of the population of the country, more or less, is vaccinated, at least, probably double vaccinated, and maybe, I think it's just under, just over half are triple vaccinated now, but we don't know. That reduction and why the Omicron seems to be uh, less severe is due to the vaccination or actually due to the acquisition of natural immunity in our community. And now that we know 90% of the population has natural immunity, well, my assumption is actually the opposite, that in fact, it's the natural immunity that's been protecting us and that it looks like the continuous vaccination may in fact be reducing the effectiveness of your natural immunity which is are we really seeing sign,
0: signs of that
1: absolutely and what
0: kinds of signs would you know what what are you seeing that counts as a sign for you that vaccination is reducing our immunity okay
1: well first of all what we're seeing is that we know from data out of Alberta that was published last year up to and and it was up to the beginning of this year before they stopped presenting the data because the data was so obvious. Uh, and basically what they found was every everybody now agrees. If you've been vaccinated, you can still get COVID again. Do and they? I'm never
0: to, sure if they agree about that. Yes,
1: it. that's even <laughs> Fauci, <laughs> Dr. Anthony Fauci, you know, the NIH. Well, I think we them. have
0: selective hearing when it comes to what Fauci says. So
1: <laughs> yeah. But he's not the only one. Uh, I, the health right. authorities okay. tell you, so, that if you're vaccinated, you know, still wear a mask. You can still infect people. Yeah, yeah. So, so I think that there's no argument here. Um, and at this point, the the argument is, well, if you're vaccinated, you'll be more, you'll be better protected so that, yes, you may get sick, but you're not going to get severely sick where it's life-threatening. And I think... I do believe, as do many of the people of Canadian COVID Care Alliance, that, that the vaccines do have a positive effect to reduce your chances of getting COVID, at least initially. I Sorry, in the, well, in fact, it's a very narrow window. This is the point I'm going to make here, that from the Alberta data, we can see that when you are, if you have a breakthrough case of COVID and you look to see, well, when did these people actually get their COVID. And if the first time you've been vaccinated, the, the first, very few people get COVID on the first day. They get it more on the second day and then even more on the third day and even more on the fourth day. And it continues up to about seven days. And that's the peak. Seven days after you've been vaccinated, you're actually more likely, you're the most likely to get COVID. And it stays like that way up to nine days. And then it drops down your risk. And that's because by that point, you're now producing antibodies that are more protective. However, there's something that's going on in the first nine days after being vaccinated that you have an increased risk of getting COVID. And so that's something that we're trying to figure out. It could be antibody-dependent enhancement, which is one phenomena that's been described. Mm -hmm. It could be original antigenic sin, certainly for the subsequent shots, um, or development of tolerance, but whatever is going on, when you're first vaccinated, you're at your greatest risk of getting COVID. And that's why it's been really problematic to encourage people to get vaccinated at a time when the virus is very prevalent.
0: So that they can travel in the next three or four days.
1: Yeah, and the virus is there. And so they seem to be more susceptible to the infection.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And that's a problem. But then after that period of time, you know, about two weeks, then you start to get that protection. And initially the protection with the second vaccination seemed to be about maybe five, six months. And then we find that it doesn't work anymore. And so you get your next shot, your, your third shot.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And in Israel, they found that that worked for about four months. And then that didn't work again. And then you have to get your fourth shot. And then if you look in Israel now, it seems to be lasting about three months. And so if you look at the, the waves that we're seeing in countries of the reoccurrence of the, of the virus, it seems as if the, the distance between the waves is getting shorter and shorter and shorter. Which I think is um, indicative of the waning of the vaccines faster and faster. Now, the other reason why I believe that you're actually reducing your immunity is that there has been studies that have just been published recently, where they looked at people that had their third vaccine shot, and they compared these people um, to people that had not been. Um, they hadn't been vaccinated before, and they compared them to when they got COVID. So these people been third shot vaccinated, and they hadn't had COVID before, but then they got it. And then you compare it to people who were unvaccinated that get COVID. And what they found was, remember I said that when you're making antibodies, um, if you're making against the spike protein, it could be from the vaccine, it could be from the virus, mm-hmm. but these other proteins one of those other proteins is called the nucleocapsid protein and when you're looking at antibodies against the nucleocapsid protein they found that people that were unvaccinated that got the covid they in fact had 93 percent of them had antibodies against the nucleocapsid protein now those people so that, what does
0: that mean What's that, the- means
1: that that their immune system recognized that part of the virus Mm -hmm. and effectively makes antibodies against it. So you have a broader immune response. This is the advantage of having natural immunity. You're not just making your antibodies against one protein you're making against several, many of the proteins that are in the virus. Now Mm -hmm. the people that were vaccinated that then got infected and you would expect again, a, a nice broad immune response only 40% of them made antibodies against the nucleocapsid protein. So the unvaccinated people, they were actually able to mount a much broader, stronger immune response than the people who had been previously vaccinated three times and then got the virus, only uh, less than half of that kind of natural immune response. So it's as if you're downregulating the ability of your body to produce a much more broader, more effective lasting response. Now I say a lasting response, because in our clinical trial where we've tested all these people, some of these people we've tested them even two years after they've had confirmed Mm COVID-19 and they still have antibodies and those antibodies, sometimes the signals are, are just as strong as when we tested them a year before. So we know that natural immunity lasts for at least two years. In fact, uh, studies with SARS-CoV-1 were, you know, back 17 years or 18 years ago, when people were looking at the antibody response and how long it lasted there, they were seeing antibodies even three years later. And with MERS, another virus that's very much related to SARS-CoV-2, they see the same thing. So Mm -hmm. we expect that the immunity, at least the production of antibodies that you can detect in the blood of people will be maintained for for a couple of years at the very least. But the bottom line is that the cells that produce those antibodies, they can stay alive. They they hibernate until you get re-exposed to the virus. And there's a little bit of a period there where the virus is replicating very quickly and the immune system is trying to catch up. But it's got a head start because it's got these cells that are already primed, these B cells, we call them memory B cells or plasma cells. And so what happens is they start pumping out the antibodies like artillery into your bloodstream. And those antibodies lock on to the virus and they tag it so that the rest of your immune system can quickly recognize it and take it out. So we know people that had Mm SARS-CoV-1 17 years later when they're vaccinated with the with the, the two. vaccine, yeah, the, mm-hmm. the, for SARS-CoV-2, right? They've infected with SARS-CoV-1. They, they, in fact, are now getting vaccinated against SARS-CoV-2. They mount a very powerful immune response that not only recognizes SARS-CoV-2, but it recognizes SARS-CoV-1. Whereas people that are, are vaccinated they don't recognize SARS-CoV-1 very well at all. Uh, so what that tells you is that the B cells from 17 years earlier that were primed were still there, and they're still able to produce antibodies that recognize the original virus plus the related virus, SARS-CoV-2. Uh, so it's, it's, it's pretty remarkable. So that sounds incredible
0: good. what what natural immunity can do but let me let me play devil's advocate for a minute right and if i was someone who's been very let's say i'm triple vaccinated and i really wholeheartedly believe that the vaccination program was the only way out. And what I'm hearing you say is that, yeah, the vaccines aren't perfect. I understand that they're not robust. I understand that they wane after a period of time, but they still work, right? And as long as I get vaccinated with the, you know, with the right frequency and the right cocktail for the rest of my life, what's the problem?
1: Well, here's the problem. First of all, these vaccines have not been shown to prevent transmission. And clearly they don't. I mean, the original Pfizer clinical trials, that was not one of the parameters, not even reducing deaths. Because we know from the original trials, there's actually slightly more people that died in the vaccinated group than the unvaccinated group. But it's a very small number of people. And then that's true in general with SARS-CoV-2. Unless you're in a very elderly and you have comorbidities, your chances of dying, We're actually very relatively low. And in fact, with Omicron, it's even way less. So so in fact, in terms of actual risk to individuals, there's a higher risk at this time of dying from something like influenza than from actually SARS-CoV-2, like an Omicron variant. So that's one thing. And that'd be great. You know, when you have natural immunity, not only do you make a more broader response makes it easier for your immune system to recognize the virus especially even after it's mutated but in addition to that it's lasting because we talked about immune memory we do not seem to have immune memory with the vaccines hmm. the third thing is and that explains why it is that you can still be contagious uh, you know you can still get infected and you can still transmit if you've been vaccinated is that the virus is in in Airborne, you know, it's it's a respiratory virus. You you get it in through your nose, your mouth, your uh, ears, probably your eyes too. Any orifice that can get in. Um, ideally, it'll get into your upper airways and then into your lungs. When you get injected in your arm, the kind of antibodies that you produce, they're called IgG antibodies. They're really good. They last about 21 days in your circulation, and but then your B cells keep pumping out more as long as the threat is there, but the, but those IgG antibodies, they're in very low concentrations in your upper lungs and airway spaces. Hmm. Instead, when you encounter the virus itself, your immune system responds by producing different antibodies. These are called IgA and IgM antibodies. And these are, are ideal for this kind of environment, they're secreted right into these spaces and they encounter the virus as it comes in. So as a consequence, you're able to neutralize that virus with the other antibodies that you produce from your previous exposure. This is not the case with the vaccine. The vaccine is more like it protects you with the virus that gets deeper into your body. And, but the problem is it's kind of like a castle where you've got all these guards everywhere except at the front gate so the perpetrator comes in messes things around goes back out that's exactly what happens with a vaccinated individual that doesn't have prior immune immunity from exposure to the virus so so these are some of the differences why it's better but to answer your actual question, what's the matter? Why can't we just keep on doing this? Like every month,
0: every week, how, you know, I mean, I think there are people who would agree to that because it sounds so good to have vaccinated
1: Expensive. These are very expensive expensive. vaccines at the end of the day. Well, we're
0: not paying for it, right?
1: Time consuming is another, (laughs) but the worst part is it's actually harmful to your body. You're actually increasing the risks, especially with repeated booster injections of actually damaging yourself. And and this is verified for example if you look at the VAERS system. This is the vaccine injury reporting system that was set up over 30 years ago by the food and uh, yeah, by the FDA, the Food and Drug Administration in the US. And it was designed to monitor safety from vaccines that were on the market. And so over 70 vaccines have been um, tracked in the system for the last 30 years. And if you take all the reports of deaths or all the reports of, of severe injury or all the supports of just total reports together for the three of the vaccines that are available in the U S you know, um, they don't have the AstraZeneca vaccine like we do in Canada, but they have the other three. If you just those three alone together, in the space of a little over a year have more vaccine injury than all of the other vaccines put together in the last 30 years. I mean, it was designed to be a warning system for problems with a vaccine. And the signal is just blazing that there's a problem with these vaccines and injury. And they've recorded, I think it's somewhere close to over 15,000 deaths that have been linked to these three vaccines in the U.S. Now, 15,000 doesn't sound like much compared to in the U.S. where they're approaching, you know, almost a million deaths. But you have to understand that the VAR system, it's a self-reporting system.
2: Mm-hmm. And
1: although it's vetted by doctors, and usually it's the doctors that that submit the reports, uh, the reality is that we think that only about uh, a little less than 2% of actual reports ever get into the VAERS system. So those that utilize it usually take those numbers and multiply by 10 or even even a 40. And so the numbers may be much higher in the hundreds of thousands of deaths. Now, that would be attributed directly to the COVID, um, sorry, to the COVID vaccines. And it's really important for people to understand in these reporting systems, just because someone's reported it it doesn't mean that it caused mm-hmm. the the illness in fact um we know that there's a background where people are are experiencing these things and coincidentally they've just been vaccinated and so you you expect that there will be this correlation that actually isn't causal mm-hmm.
2: however
1: most of the injuries are linked very close in time. And so this temporal link indicates that there may be causality. Mm -hmm. And certainly in clinical trials that have been done, we we know that 5% of the people in formal clinical trials where you're comparing it to a person that's a placebo group, that 5% of them have severe injury in Mm -hmm. the vaccinated group. So it actually turns out to be about uh, for severe injuries, 75% higher in the vaccinated group than in the controlled unvaccinated group. That's that's uh, without the 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 COVID-19 vaccine, the placebo. So so there's there's a, all kinds of data that shows the safety. But even now, we recognize in younger people who are at the lowest risks um, of getting COVID-19 that's severe. So, like for example, in the United Kingdom, 97% of the high school students there have natural immunity. They, they just reported this you know, a couple of weeks ago. Yeah. And in terms of the, the reporting of symptoms in that group, it's now very clear that the vast majority of those students were completely asymptomatic. They had no idea that they had COVID-19 mm-hmm. or at least the COVID-19 is the disease. So in fact, they didn't have the disease but they had been infected with the virus and they had produced antibodies that will protect them in the future. So, so the, the concern is that those younger people, let's say we take uh, myocarditis as an example, uh, what you see is that the risk of getting myocarditis, if you're a male that's under 24, between 12 to 24, we don't have that much data on, on younger than that, but 12 to 24, the risk is, reported, and there's various reports, but I would say the average number is about one in 5,000. Males, second shot of Pfizer um, in that age group will get symptomatic myocarditis. Now, what you don't hear about, firstly, they say, well, it's mild myocarditis, you know. Well, that's the symptoms. And in fact, the damage is permanent. You know, myocarditis is basically when your own immune system attacks, it infiltrates the heart, attacks your own heart muscle cells, and it kills them. And as a consequence, you replace it with scar tissue, which can't contract. So as a consequence, the surrounding muscle cells that are survived have to get bigger to accommodate the load that they have to pump that heart, Know, the, so to pump the blood through the heart and the rest of the circulation. So so the heart gets bigger and that's a good protective response initially. But mm-hmm. anyone who's a cardiologist will tell you that as your heart gets bigger and you have higher blood pressure and you've got breakage of platelets, this just seeds arterial sclerosis. So you're setting up that person for a lifetime of cardiovascular disease. And you know, after cancer, cardiovascular disease is the number two killer in, in our population. So the thing is that that's myocarditis that's symptomatic, but we, th- we believe from data with other forms of, of viral myocarditis that for every person that presents that's asymptomatic, they have an episode, they have to go to the hospital, 99% of the people who are, have present myocarditis go to the hospital so mm-hmm. it's very severe at that point but there's at least three times the number of people that are asymptomatic they have the damage and they don't they know exerted themselves to the point where they're they're going to um, have to uh, get that episode that lets them know that they have that damage so mm-hmm. if we're talking about one in maybe a thousand or one in, in 1500 males in that age group now have permanent damage to their hearts, well, that's just completely unacceptable when the risk of them getting, for example, and it's often cited that, well, if they get COVID, they're going to get myocarditis. Mm-hmm. Those numbers, what people don't understand is that we're talking about people that go to the hospital that are in that age group that, that get maybe one in 750 will get myocarditis if they go to the hospital, but the chances of them going to the hospital in the first place with myoc- with COVID-19 is like one in a hundred. So you're actually more than 10 times more likely to get myocarditis from the vaccine than you would ever get from the virus itself. So... Let me is- ask
0: you to look into a crystal ball for a minute and something a scientist would not like to do, I don't think, but to yeah. engage in a little bit of counterfactual thinking, where do you think we would be now if we hadn't vaccinated at all against COVID? And where would we be in a couple of years as opposed to you know, where we're now gonna be in a couple of years having enacted this massive vaccination program? What would the world look like now can, can you imagine if we hadn't done this?
1: Well, th- th- actually, there's a lot of angles to this question. Um, but first thing, uh, I think people should appreciate when SARS-CoV-1, which is actually much more lethal, hit mm-hmm. our population 17 years ago, in basically barely a year, it was gone. Like, we didn't have reports of SARS-CoV-1 again. So w- what happened? How did this virus all of a sudden magically disappear?
0: Well, what ha- what did happen?
1: Well, <laughs> people had immunity generally in the population. And uh, I think, you know, there was effective health measures to try to quarantine to a certain extent those that were contagious. But, but the fact of the matter is, I think natural immunity took hold. We can see this more recently in India, for example. So as we know in India, in May and, and uh, June of last year, they had huge reports of deaths. They hadn't had no spike of, of deaths or incidents of COVID it was like that in India for the year and a half before. And then all of a sudden it just took off. And you have to understand that that less than 12% of their population was vaccinated at that point, okay? And it went up very quickly and it went down very quickly. and your audience should appreciate that the rate per capita of the COVID infections in India at that time was exactly the same as in Ontario. Okay, so the large numbers of deaths wasn't a reflection of the virus being more deadly than we've encountered elsewhere in the world. It's because they have you know, 1.4 billion people living in India. And so when something like this spreads, you're gonna get a large number of, of deaths. But the key thing is with only about 12% of the population vaccinated, it came down like by July 1st, it was back down to what it was just a couple of months earlier. And it stayed like that until more recently, when now you've got over 60% of their population vaccinated, and, and now it's come right back up. <laughs> so is it hyperbolic it's the to say are that driving the actual infections. So yeah, to your question. I think. How do we let things take their course, protected those that were the most vulnerable, which we know we should have done everything possible. In fact, not put elderly people in nursing homes if they have COVID-19 with the rest of the residents. So making killing zones is essentially what we did. It was the craziest thing. We would have far less deaths. Even now, for example, Ontario government recently with health the health authorities recognize that half the people that even died from COVID or even went to the hospital with COVID, they, they, it wasn't from COVID. It was other um, comorbidities that took mm-hmm. them there in the first place or why they died from it. Like in BC, we've had two deaths for people under um, 28 years of age. And there are two two-year-olds that, in fact, had leukemia. Not, nobody under 28 years of age, two and a half years in the pandemic in BC has, has died. So, mm-hmm. so I think what would have happened is that we would have been, like in Sweden, you'll get a, a spike, and then eventually um, those that are the most vulnerable, uh, they will succumb to it unless we have, in fact, a herd immunity. We would have established that, and I think that we would have been long past this. Instead, what we've done is we've exacerbated the problem by first making it so that the virus is, in fact, more able to be uh, replicate and transmit in society so we get more of these mutations because the immunity that's provided is, is not as broad. Uh, when we were going to acquire the immunity, the vaccines, I think, actually reduced that immunity. I know this sounds very like this is this is not what you're hearing from the public health office. That's Well, sure.
0: that's true, but it's logical.
1: But it's based on the data and as we accumulate more information and you know there's been a half a million publications about COVID-19 in the scientific literature. So there's a lot to go through. And mm-hmm. you know you can cherry pick the kind of data that wants to support your arguments, but eventually you get a overall response that you can make sense of. So because of the way this has been handled by the public health authorities, unfortunately, the masking doesn't really seem to work,
2: mm-hmm. and
1: the uh, the quarantining of people it's it's you know when only two percent well actually less than two percent of all the cases of COVID nineteen in the country mm-hmm. is from people coming into the country from elsewhere. When you got ninety eight percent plus of all of your cases are driven internally does it really make any difference to do this kind of you know quarantining between
0: within out of the
1: country and within the country
0: mm-hmm. and
1: so th- there's that issue and then like I say the masks don't work the quarantining doesn't work um there's this false sense of security that people have with the masks and so they might um be a little bit more cavalier so well i'm injected now i'm protected i'm the safe person and you know, it's the dirty, you know, person that's unvaccinated that's spreading this when, you know, in fact, we already know in the hospitals and in, in the funeral homes now for COVID cases, they're well over 80% of them are double or triple vaccinated people. Mm-hmm. I mean, he, he, even here, like, for example, in British Columbia, 14% of our population is unvaccinated. But in the recent months, they only count for 7% of the deaths from Mm COVID-19. So, you know,
0: statistically, you're much less likely to die from COVID if you're unvaccinated.
1: Exactly. And if Mm -hmm. you're triple vaccinated, you're 50% more likely to die than if you're double vaccinated. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, this is not the trends that you expect uh, if these vaccines are effective. And and I just talked about, you know, just myocarditis. I mean, there's a laundry list that's I think Pfizer itself reported that was like nine pages long that had about, I think it was over 1,243 different diseases that they had some sort of a linkage after their product was marketed, and we call this post-marketing surveillance, and there were, I think it was well over 1,200 deaths that were, you know, in that first two months after the release of their vaccine on the market. So, we're still waiting for the rest of the information to come out, but as it's coming out uh, from court order in the U.S., uh, they wanted to spend like up to 75 years to release this data in over 350 pages, apparently, mm-hmm. information, and it's coming out in little drips and drabs right now, but what we're seeing already, it's, it's very disconcerting that mm-hmm. how these drugs were and I call them drugs because, in fact, they are genetic therapy. How they were approved in the first
2: place—it's
1: mm-hmm. just ridiculous. We've set the bar so low now. I'm concerned not just about these vaccines, but what about the other products that are on the market that you can, you know, try to put a case forward that well, this is emergency use authorization or in Canada, interim order. That if we lowered the bar so low on our standards before we release it on the general public, who, who knows what's next? So where we're going in the future is that we're now keeping track of all-cause mortality, and it's frightening. For example, in Australia, there they had very draconian measures that they took
2: mm-hmm. in their
1: population. The number of deaths that with COVID, is about 6,000 deaths in Australia. Now, if it's anything like what we have in Canada and elsewhere, half of those were with COVID, but they didn't die from COVID. So maybe 3,000 deaths. Mm -hmm. Now, if you take a look at the data on the very same websites, public health websites in Australia, what you find is that due to Freedom of Information Act, you can download the information on people who have died with the vaccine. And it's all redacted. It's all black, you know, several pages long, hundreds of pages. But 38 pages, you can see a listing of ages, of the age of death of the people. And each line you can assume is a different person. So it's about 920 plus deaths that are now been linked to the vaccine, right? So you've got 920 deaths linked to the vaccine and we expect like varies and other systems, this is an underestimate, a dramatic underestimate. And we got these deaths, maybe 3,000. Now, all-cause mortality, this is the key thing it's, here.
0: Can you say very clearly what that is? Just so people understand what all-cause mortality means.
1: Well, for example, here in British Columbia, 100 people die every day of everything from suicides to, to drug overdoses, car accidents. To car accidents and cancer mostly, um, heart disease mostly, they alone account for about 90 plus percent of all the deaths. But any disease, for the last 10 years in British Columbia, it's been about 100 deaths per day. Okay, so that's all cause. Now, when you take a look at all cause data prior to the introduction of vaccines into Australia and then subsequently, there has been an increase above what you expect the average over many, many years to be of 20,000 extra deaths in Australia since they introduced the vaccine even though prior to that, and, and, and I, I have to explain, again, 3,000 deaths most likely due to COVID-19 during the entire pandemic in Australia. Mm-hmm. And most of those were early in the uh, pandemic. So, so in fact, that extra 20,000 deaths doesn't reflect directly the virus causing those deaths.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: It's something else. And that's something else is the response of the society to that in some way Mm -hmm. right so more cancer deaths because people are not going to the doctor they're not getting access to medical care stress Mm -hmm. when you are scared your immune system gets depressed you're more likely to not only acquire Mm COVID-19 but a lot of these other infectious diseases that are out there
2: Mm -hmm. and
1: so it just it just we're seeing this increase in all cause mortality occurring not just in Australia it's happening all around the world right now so i think we're going to go through a period of where we're going to have continued increased amounts of of disease and death that's going to be as a consequence of how we've handled that situation now and it's going to be really hard to tell except comparing it to past years
2: mm-hmm. we
1: all of our because most people have been vaccinated, and so few of us have not been,
2: mm-hmm. there's
1: there's not a good benchmark to compare it to. Like a control group. Right. And mm-hmm. so, statistically, it's going to be hard to see this, but we can compare with previous years, and that's becoming very obvious.
0: And you say that we're likely to see not just deaths, but some diseases. I mean, what do you see in the coming, you know, in the fall, or, or, or a year from now, or five years from now, in terms of the kinds of diseases we're likely to see that right. arguably are linked to these vaccines.
1: I think we're going to have a higher rate. My personal feeling is that we're going to have a higher rate of autoimmune diseases. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I'm concerned that because the vaccines were so well received by the health authorities, they'll push this technology. And the technology is that you can take the genetic information to create proteins from a pathogen, a virus or a bacteria or a fungi, Mm -hmm. and encapsulate that genetic information in these lipid nanoparticles that can be used to then inject into people. And in order for these types of vaccines to work, they have to actually instruct your own body cells to produce this foreign protein that can be pathogenic, on the surface of your own body cells. This is how these vaccines work. And so to get a response, to be able to educate B cells to recognize that protein, there's a few intervening steps. And it requires that your own immune system attacks those cells of your body that are producing that protein on their surface. Mm. So it actually harms them it damages them, it may kill them, and you generate what we call exosomes. These are little fragments of those cells that are then eaten by these other immune cells. We call them like macrophages and neutrophils and um, other antigen-presenting cells, dendritic cells. These cells are of the immune system. They're the ones that go out and, and encounter first these foreign threats and they generally attack them directly head on. So for example, the SARS-CoV-2 virus would be engulfed by macrophage, digested, put into little pieces and then presented with those pieces when the macrophage or a neutrophil that's done the same thing goes to your lymph nodes where these T cells and B cells reside to educate them and find those T cells and B cells that have that affinity that can recognize that. So that's the process, but it requires tissue destruction requires attack on your own cells. Now, during that attack, you're also taking presenting your own body proteins to your T and B cells. And hopefully, your T cells and B cells, they've recognized this before, and you don't make antibodies against yourself. But, But in fact, we now know, of course, diseases like lupus, and arthritis, and colitis, And Alzheimer's disease, Parkinson's disease, type 1 diabetes, the list just goes on. These are examples of diseases that arise, autoimmune diseases, when your body is now recognizing your immune system, your own body, and attacks it on a regular basis. And that entire process in many of these diseases is triggered when you have initial inflammatory attacks against your own tissues and repeated (laughs) so. And it just gets worse. So this is what I think is probably going to happen.
0: These are all uh, autoimmune diseases, as you say. What about, I mean, if we start talking about the really scary things, smallpox, leprosy, cholera, Ebola, um, can, can you give us your views on the recent monkeypox and smallpox? And why are we seeing these things now? Do you think that there's going to be an increase in these very, uh, lethal kinds of viruses, and and is that a result of, 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 of from what we've done?
1: Well, yeah. I mean, here's the thing. These viruses have been around for ever since humanity has started, so far as we know. Mm-hmm. Um, oftentimes, if it hasn't been in the human species, it's come into the human species from animal vectors. Mm-hmm. There's, there's literally hundreds of thousands of different viruses alone, that are in the world, that in fact just mammals, never mind all of the other types of animals and insects. And,
0: and some plants. of them sound much worse than others, just by virtue of right. their names. Well, right? with
1: <laughs> humans, there's about 200 pathogens that are are particularly um, lethal with viruses. Mm. You know, they cause you know human you know, disease, okay? So it's a very, very small subset of what's actually out there. And the reason why that they affect us and not all these other viruses is because they have to co-evolve with the the host. They don't only have to be able to get inside, you know, into the, the barriers of the cells in the body, but they have to, once they get inside the cells, they have to be able to to take advantage of the cellular machinery to replicate themselves. And, And that requires very precise fitting and it takes a long time to evolve that. So when we have a virus that's already affecting people, yeah, it can undergo further mutations, but the vast majority of mutations that occur actually are disadvantageous to the virus. Only a very, very small subset are actually gonna make it maybe more infectious or maybe more deadly. The problem is if it becomes more deadly and it's obvious, and this is a, the case like Ebola, we don't have, you know, real big widespread infections with Ebola because it's pretty obvious. The person gets sick pretty quick. Uh, and you stay ones, away from them. Is yeah, that right? the ones that you don't know that you've been infected and you go about your 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 business until maybe you might get sick and then you'll do something about it i mean we we all get colds we all get flus usually on an annual basis they're not lethal they're very inconvenient the <laughs> symptoms are very bad in fact most of the drugs that are out there on the market you know at least over the counter drugs are are you know to to deal with the symptoms of disease, now, when you feel sick from a virus infection, it's actually not the virus that's causing you directly to have those illnesses. It's your own immune system that's mm-hmm. being turned on that has all these effects. You know, your temperature rises because your immune system is more effective at a higher temperature. Mm-hmm. Your you're you're you have the aches and pains because this is where your immune system is going to these places and it's causing a little bit of swelling and you're feeling that that pain mm. and tenderness you know you're coughing because you're clearing your lungs of you know bacteria i mean your immune system doesn't know the difference between a bacteria or a fungi or or a virus mm. it's just um,
0: working hard to it's just whatever spend... that
1: threat is it's this is the this this is the what really works you have like a an innate immune system, like an army that goes out first and deals with it. You've got uh, your your T cells, and you got your B cells. These are what we call our um, our adaptive immune system. So it's it's it, and they they coordinate with each other. So you have a very very effective response. And sometimes these same immune system was in place to deal with parasites that we often had in our body that we don't have now. So. Natural immunity is extremely well-developed, it's multifaceted, and it's very effective in most cases. It's mm-hmm. usually when you have situations of when you're really elderly and your immune system is now starting to break down because you're not really exposing yourself to things anymore. It's a very sedentary lifestyle. Your nutrition isn't very good. Um, you, you may, in fact, be taking drugs or other things that suppress your immune system, Uh, You may be stressed out. You're not getting enough sleep. Uh, All these factors come into play to reduce your resistance to infection. And that's when these uh, pathogens that are in the environment, they're infectious, take hold. I mean, most people die really actually from pneumonia in a hospital. The pneumonia is around us all the time, but know, this is the old person's friend. It's a, a relatively painless death. And it's these viruses and bacteria that are around, that's when they take hold, when, when your resistance is down.
0: Well, this has been a fascinating conversation and I've heard you speak about things that I haven't heard you talk about before. So I'm so grateful for it. I know we've just got a couple minutes left but I I know that you just came back from the conference called Restore Canada, I believe in Victoria. And I was just wondering if you could share a little bit about that.
1: Well, this was a conference that had uh, lawyers and medical doctors and research scientists and and politicians, uh, Preston Manning, and Max and Bernier was actually, uh, they were by, by Zoom, but the, most of the people that were at this conference, and there were several hundred of us that were together, and we we're also um, on the, the legislature in parliament, but we had these sessions in that evening and also the next day, the Sunday. And we're trying to come up with, how do we get Canada back onto a, a normal tract again where we can restore the the things that we had just a few years ago before we we were really taken over by this uh, COVID uh, frenzy. And and actually one of the interesting things that came out of this conference is COVID-19 in some respects may have been a gift because it really made us more aware of the deficiencies that we're seeing in our governance in our uh, healthcare system, I mean, our healthcare system was 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 having problems before COVID, and while it was nice to blame COVID for a lot of the 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 uh, overcapacity, you know, overcapacities, and, of mm-hmm. and the fact of the matter is, even in Ontario, it was never an overcapacity from COVID nineteen, and about twenty percent under in most cases but it's always been very close to that mark in Ontario and the rest of Canada, and in fact, many other places in the world. So it revealed deficiencies in our healthcare system. It also exposed us to the deficiencies in our mainstream media reporting. That in fact, we're not getting a lot of the goods about COVID-19 and its risks and, and how heavily censored that has been. And now our social media platforms have been heavily censored and it's also revealed a lot about our court system because you know I would have thought that if you're denying employment or or um, ability to travel to people on the basis of whether or not they want to get vaccinated, that the human rights, you know, would be all over this.
0: All up in arms.
1: Or, or your colleagues, you know, in the universities that are, you know. At ethical. any
0: other time.
1: <laughs> right. Like, you know, they're so worried about uh, some things, but this is just like, oh, no, everything's fine. And, and, you know, they're ethicists. I just don't understand it. I mean, you've been so brave. And, you know, it, it, it demonstrates that these are real ethical issues. So the solution to this, we think. Is that we need to come up with a citizen-led national inquiry with credible individuals where individuals across our society can explain their experiences and their knowledge in terms of how this is all you know unfolded because we do not want this to happen again and as you point out for some reason we're hearing about monkeypox, which you know, it's a very small number of cases we're talking about here. And you know, and influenza, we've always had these problems before with influenza outbreaks, which are more deadly than actually the SARS-CoV-2 is at this time with the uh, COVID-19. So it's like we're hypersensitive, and the media is really bought by the, the government because they're so dependent on that kind of funding the even the universities are so dependent on the pharmaceutical industry that
0: and the governments which i think is another government. thing that's been, been revealed
1: over the last 2 years exactly the, the the conflict of interest is so incredible i mean as a research scientist in my own lab i'm getting like i have to file every year you know these courses you know for for you know no conflict of interest can't be it can't be actual conflict of interest. It can't be uh, perceived conflict of interest and it can't be potential conflict of interest. We have to do all these mitigating facts, uh, activities to, to try to deal with that kind of conflict of interest.
2: Mm-hmm. So, uh,
1: an individual like from a sales rep from a company can't come to my lab to show me a new product and for our time, you know, provide us with some donuts and, and maybe a mug, even without the logo of their company. No. We're, we're, we're just so easily influenced that, you know, we're cautioned against this is a, a no-no. But meanwhile, when you see these big drug companies, and you have my colleagues that are, are um, let's say, the consultants for those companies, paid consultants, at the same time, they're the ones that are overseeing the vaccine programs and the education of doctors in our province in continuing medical education of how safe these are i mean the conflict of interest is just incredible and so that's a, that's a big problem too.
0: Yeah, blatant and yet uh, completely flying under the radar. So you mentioned right. that COVID has been a gift in some sense in that right. it has revealed so many of these problems with conflict of interest and regulatory capture. And I think the politicization of science and academic work and health and and all of that. But what's more troubling to me than the fact that big government and big Pharmaceutical companies would be in bed to bed with each other is the fact that the population globally has very blindly and willingly seated and accepted all of it, and in my view, will very likely do it again. And it's that psychological factor that is incredibly
1: interesting. Fear, fear, fear Fear, fear is what's actually driving most of this, Mm. and it's being used. As a weapon for control, and it's a it's a playbook that's been done by dictators historically, you know, for millennia, and it's that that's t- successful, yeah. And the government is very sophisticated because of our technologies that are available to us mm-hmm. now. We can we can influence people so easily, and you know, these are what we call nudging techniques. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And you know, in the past, it's propaganda, but the nudging that's going on, the advertising it's working at a very subliminal level yes. on top of all this. And you know, people, I think a number of people are aware that they sense something isn't right. They can't put their fingers on it. Their gut feeling they're
0: complicated is- to figure it out. Yeah. So, so
1: they're, they're, they're following the lead from other people. So, you know, for example, I mean, the funniest thing Julie, is you know, my university, UBC, you know, the public health office said that we had to wear masks in public spaces. And so the university always said that, well, you know, we're going to follow the public health lead. Of course, they're the ones that instruct the public health office about what works. But nonetheless,
0: no way um, out of that circularity, apparently.
1: (laughs) But you know, eventually the public authority says, Okay, that's it. You don't have to wear masks anymore in public spaces. But at the university. We, we had to do it until the end of term. So that would have been like a month later. And then, so you know, I try to point this out in Senate because I'm a senator at UBC and say, well, look, they've dropped the mandates. Why are we doing this? You know, we're supposed to be the example for society to use evidence-based information to dictate what should be our actions. And then I couldn't even get the, the motion up to be approved. Um, it was close.
0: And what is I the response? What is the rationale for people who say, no, we should hold on to the masking?
1: Because they are so scared mm-hmm. and they want to be on the side of caution, but not recognizing that those very actions themselves are harmful. Mm-hmm. I mean, the the experience, you know, your university professor, the it's one thing learning things in classes. Mm-hmm. But the other part, the important part of that university experience, is the socialization that goes on. To be able to talk to people mm-hmm. on a, a regular basis, to discuss things, and to have even like the social clubs. That socialization is so important, and it's bringing together you know, people that are going to be leaders in society in the future. And we're we're separating them out. And even now at the University of British Columbia. Our mask mandate is going to the end of June now. I mean, it's completely ridiculous. Well, there are
0: so few people on campus anyway.
1: Yeah, during that period of time. But it's, it's like, as I said, we need to use evidence to actually drive what our policies should be.
0: And not the other way
1: around. And not the other way around. Yes, exactly.
0: Steve, thank you so very much for this. And I when I speak with people like you, I always hope it's a it's an ongoing conversation and this is just a little chapter. Um and I just really appreciate I know that I I think when people see interviews like this, they don't appreciate how much you know other things, how many other things you have going on. And I know you have a very busy schedule and that's what makes you competent to
2: give us this information. So I I just really appreciate it. Thank you so much.
1: No, it's always a pleasure, Julie.